Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you were to ask a contemporary band like, say, the White Stripes or the Hives about which groups influenced their sound, they would probably list off a bunch of names, including the Stooges. If you were to go back to the 90s and talk to bands like uh, Jane's Addiction or Nirvana in their prime and ask them about their favorite older bands, one of the names they would inevitably mention would be the Stooges. If you were to slip back to the 80s and ask Sonic Youth about the records that shaped their sound, they would probably say the Stooges. If you traveled back to the 1970s and asked the Sex Pistols or the Ramones to name some of the bands that made them want to make music, they would say the Stooges. And if you were to go back to the early, early 70s and ask a then-new artist named David Bowie about the bands he most admire, he'd say the Stooges. All right, then, so the Stooges seem to be on everybody's list, even though they hardly sold any records in their day and were so messed up that their singer ended up in an asylum. So I, I guess the question must be asked, what's the big deal about the Stooges? This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. The Stooges, Iggy Pop, the brothers Ron and Scott Ashton, and Dave Alexander. That's no fun from their self-titled album in 1969. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is another one of those occasional programs where we look for an explanation as to why certain bands are name-checked by so many other big groups. What is it about these groups that make them so influential, even though they were absolute commercial failures when they were around? Now, Iggy Pop and the Stooges are a prime example of this. David Bowie found them profoundly fascinating. The Ramones worshipped them. The Sex Pistols covered their songs when they played live. And even today, there are 14-year-olds around the world who are having their eyes open to the possibilities of rock and roll by listening to Stooges albums that are 40 years old. In fact, in the summer of 2010, I went to a free outdoor show featuring a reunited Stooges, and there must have been 15,000 people there, and they ranged in age from young punks with tattoos and piercings, whose main mode of transportation was still a skateboard, to guys in their 60s with long gray ponytails, if they had any hair at all. So what's the big deal here? What is it about this band? Well, let's start at the beginning. The Stooges were one of the very first bands to operate on the extreme fringes of rock music. And their story starts with James Newell Osterberg, Jimmy to his friends. By grade 10, he was one of the most recognizable kids at Ann Arbor High School near Detroit. People knew that he loved his politics and that he was deep into music, especially Motown and the blues that came out of Chicago. This is how he became friends with a younger student at the same school named Ron Ashton. And from there was a short step to his brother Scott. They admired Iggy's talent as a drummer. Not only did he play in the school marching band, but he also eventually ended up in a couple of rock bands. The first of any consequence was the Iguanas. They were good enough to open shows for a couple of Motown groups of the day, and sometimes they'd be hired as the backing band for whatever out-of-town group came through Detroit. That's what happens when you play two sets a night, five nights a week. You get to be pretty good. Next came the Prime Movers, and they were more of a blues band. And here's where Jim became known as Iggy, because, well, he used to play in the Iguanas. There was a bit of a scare when Iggy was drafted. There was a real possibility that he'd end up in Vietnam. 
So he reported to the local draft office, but there was um, an incident during the physical that convinced the people in charge that Iggy really wasn't army material. Let's just say it happened when Iggy was naked and about to be subjected to a close exam. He left the prime movers shortly after that to concentrate on being a better blues player. But then when a record store owner named Bob Kester reintroduced him to the Ashton brothers and a guy named Dave Alexander, Iggy began to think a little differently. Ron's idol was Pete Townsend of The Who. Scott was a drummer who loved the raw garage bands of the day. And Dave dropped out of high school 45 minutes into his senior year and ended up riding a motorcycle across the UK on a search to find the true meaning of the Beatles. It was 1967. Hippie culture was at its peak. Everybody was turning on, tuning in, and dropping out, and dropping a lot of acid. These four guys decided to form a band with Iggy out front and on keyboards. They rehearsed at the Ashton House and took acid while watching TV. And that's actually how they came up with their name. When they were very, very high, they were watching the Three Stooges on TV, and somebody suggested, I know, we'll just call ourselves the Psychedelic Stooges. It stuck, although it was eventually shortened to just Stooges, probably because nobody could remember how to spell psychedelic. Now, when speaking of names, this is about when Iggy became known as Iggy Pop. The pop part came after Iggy shaved off his eyebrows in some weird stoned gesture. The other three guys said he now looked like a local druggy dude named Jim Pop. So Iggy Pop it became. On October 20th, 1967, The Doors played a show at the University of Michigan. Iggy was there, and he was inspired by Jim Morrison's drunkenness and the way he provoked the audience. That got him thinking. The first Stooges gig was a few days later, Halloween 1967, at their headquarters on State Street in Ann Arbor. It was, um, weird. Iggy wore a wig made of strands of aluminum foil and played a Hawaiian guitar with every string tuned to E. Scott's drum kit was nothing more than some old 45-gallon oil drums, which he played with ball-peen hammers. Dave's job was to bang on Ron's amplifier to get weird reverb effects. Told you it was weird. It was also awful. But because everybody was so high, both the band and the audience, everybody seemed to think that it was all a big success. This led to discussions of a second gig. But having had time to think about what he saw at the Doors concert, Iggy suggested that the band become a little more conventional. Guitar, bass, and drums with him out front. No one seemed to mind, so that's what they did. The Stooges' first professional gig was on January 20th, 1968, opening for the Amboy Dukes, which featured a young guitarist named Ted Nugent. Their second was March 3rd, 1968, opening for the Canadian band Blood, Sweat & Tears. The hippie kids really didn't know what to make of the Stooges. They were so raw and primitive. And was the singer playing a vacuum cleaner? Yes, yes it was. And... Was it attached to a blender? And yeah, it was. It was a homemade instrument that Iggy called the Osterizer. He soon gave it up because it was too hard to amplify. Household appliances aside, the Stooges were different. That was for sure. People either came to see the Stooges because they loved them, or they came to hate. That mean, that self-destructive, that confrontational, that contortionist, that half-naked, sometimes more than half-naked lead singer who often dove into the audience with no regard for his safety, or the safety of the audience. It's quite possible that Iggy was the inventor of stage diving. 
I just wish there were some recordings of those early days. If they exist, they're extremely hard to come by, obviously, and probably of extremely low quality. However, the Stooges eventually came to the attention of Danny Fields, a talent scout for Elektra Records, who was hired for his ability to find the right hippie bands. He, for example, was the guy who signed The Doors. While in Detroit to check out another band called the MC5, Danny heard about the Stooges, and even though his bosses were absolutely stupefied by them, they agreed to sign the band. Danny found John Cale of the Velvet Underground to produce their debut record, but because the band couldn't hold it together for a rehearsal longer than 20 minutes, they barely had enough material. One story has it that half the record was written the night before their first day in the studio. All the old avant-garde stuff was torn apart and reworked into something a little bit more uh, coherent. They managed it, just barely, but it was awesome. Iggy and the Stooges from their 1969 self-titled debut record. That's I Want to Be Your Dog. This album did not sell. It was too raw, too primitive for most people. But that turned out to be its genius. You have to put this record into context. Nobody was making music that sounded like this. And those who got it, loved it. And now I'm gonna be 22. More Stooges from their 1969 debut record, and that's called 1969. Tracks on this album have been covered by the Sex Pistols, Joey Ramone, Sonic Youth, the Sisters of Mercy, Joan Jett, Red Cross, and the Black Keys. It has gone down in history as being one of the most important pre-punk records of all time, and it's the beginnings of Iggy's legend as the godfather of punk. But at the time, it sucked, even before it was finished. The first mix was rejected by the record label. Electra president Jack Holtzman came in to do it himself. Even then, when the album was released, few people bought it. But it didn't matter to the Stooges, or to Electra apparently, because there would be a second album. We'll go there next. The more gigs they played, the weirder and more extreme the Stooges became. Iggy was just out of control, often getting naked, cutting himself with broken glass, and smearing things like raw meat and peanut butter all over himself. And it really didn't matter if you knew any of the music. You went to the show to see the spectacle. It was the spring of 1970, so it was time to start thinking about a second album. They called it Funhouse, after the place they lived in Detroit. But making it was anything but fun for anybody but the band. It was recorded in L.A., the drugs, shall we say, were varied and plentiful. And it was the first time that anyone in the group had tried cocaine. Lie! They liked it a lot. The Stooges with TVI from the Funhouse album. That whole record was recorded live off the floor. If there are any overdubs, there aren't many. And the reason for this was to try and capture as close as possible to the Stooges' live sound. The seven songs in the record were recorded pretty much in order, just as if they were playing a gig. Funhouse came out in July 1970, and by the end of that summer, the Stooges were at their outrageous peak. And Iggy? Well, it's amazing he didn't somehow manage to kill himself during a gig. 
Even though in retrospect, Funhouse is considered to be the best representation of what the Stooges were all about, it was at the time again savaged by the critics and did not sell. By the end of 1970, Iggy and Scott Ashton were serious heroin junkies. Bass player Dave Alexander had been fired for showing up at a gig too drunk to play, which, considering the habits of the rest of the band, is a bit weird. New bass players came and went. A second guitarist named James Williamson was added, but he couldn't provide any new stability. They had a new manager, but he couldn't keep the Stooges under control. Gigs got worse, and sometimes Iggy was so stoned that he couldn't even stand up. So, Electra dropped them. Actually, they more than dropped them. They demanded a refund of $11,000 on an advance they had given the band. The Stooges did nothing for the next nine months. Except drugs, of course. Except Ron Ashton. He didn't want any part of what he called the death trip. He became further and further estranged from the rest of the group. Iggy paid the bills by becoming a middleman for a heroin dealer, but sometimes he forgot his role and ended up using all the drugs himself. The Stooges were torn apart by debt. They were under investigation by the IRS for non-payment of taxes. There were bills from the time Scott Ashton tried to drive the band's 14-foot truck under a 13-foot bridge. Eventually, the Stooges were done. Iggy spent the next six months in Florida cutting lawns for retirees. But then, while in New York sponging off a friend, Iggy met a new British singer named David Bowie. The date was September the 7th of 1971. Bowie was about to launch into his Ziggy Stardust phase. That character was to be, in part, inspired by Iggy. I mean, why do you think Bowie chose the name Ziggy? Bowie was on a hot streak, and thus he had power. And after bonding with Iggy, he convinced him, the Ashton brothers, and James Williamson to come to England, where they'd all make a record for Columbia Records. And the result was an album called Raw Power. Wow. The title track of the Stooges' 1973 album, Raw Power, and despite the Bowie connection, it once again didn't exactly trouble the charts. It peaked at 182 on the top 200. But the people who bought this record were inspired. On July 15, 1972, before the rest of the band joined him in the UK, Iggy played his first show outside of the US. At that gig was a 16-year-old Johnny Lydon. So was a young Mick Jones, who would later go on to form The Clash. Later, Kurt Cobain recorded in his journals that Raw Power was his favorite album ever. Henry Rollins has Search and Destroy tattooed on his back. And songs from the album have been covered by the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Guns N' Roses, and Def Leppard. But again, when it came out back in the day, nobody cared. Not even the record label. There were another series of fights over the final mix, something that continued well into the 1990s. Still, what a record. The Stooges from Raw Power with Search and Destroy. A classic now, but back then the record label ignored them. Management didn't seem to care much and abandoned them. And the band, especially Iggy, didn't help matters much. He was often lost in a haze of acid, heroin, and hash. The Stooges hung on and toured for about a year. Iggy became increasingly deranged and unstable. He was genuinely mentally ill. 
He once thought it was a good idea to share a stash of Valium with a couple of dogs that belonged to a friend. Uh, But don't worry, the dogs survived. The last show the Stooges played together was at a club called The Rock and Roll Farm in Wayne, Michigan. The date was February 9th, 1974. It was a biker bar. The bikers didn't appreciate Iggy. Maybe it was because he was wearing a pink leotard. Anyway, the set was recorded, and if you listen closely, you can hear glass breaking on the stage. That's all part of a 45-minute version of Louie Louie by the Kingsman. It was peppered with all kinds of insults hurled by Iggy at the bikers. After they started throwing eggs and bottles at the stage, Iggy went after the biggest biker in the crowd, a 300-pounder who promptly smashed Iggy right in the face. That was it. The Stooges left the stage, and they were done for good this time. That October, this would be 1974, Iggy was arrested for being aggressively strung out in an L.A. burger joint. He ended up at the UCLA Neuropsychiatric Hospital, and for weeks he lived in an 8x4 room detoxing and being diagnosed by a variety of psychiatrists. He had two visitors. One was David Bowie, and the other was Bowie's costume designer, a woman named Ola Hudson. She had a nine-year-old son named Saul. Saul Hudson. We'd later call him Slash. Bowie, although not in the greatest shape himself when it came to drugs, turned out to be Iggy's and ultimately the Stooges' savior. Iggy and Bowie moved to Berlin, cleaned up, and restarted their careers. Iggy's solo career really got moving with two albums, The Idiot and Lust for Life, both released in 1977. Now, there were some bumps along the way, but over the next 25 years, Iggy went from being the most deranged man in rock to one of the most respected, the godfather of punk and all that. And what are the other Stooges? Well, that story's next. As an increasingly drug-free Iggy Pop successfully built upon his myth and legend, the other Stooges struggled to get by. Some did not. Original bass player Dave Alexander contracted a serious case of pancreatitis due to his drinking. He died in hospital at age 27 in February of 1975. Zeke Zetner, a one-time roadie and Alexander's first replacement on bass, died in 1973. Ron Ashton played in a series of bands, none of which did much, although there was the group that featured Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth, also Mark Arm of Mudhoney and Jay Maskus of Dinosaur Jr. He also did some acting. If you know where to look, you can find him in the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974. Guitarist James Williamson is an interesting case. He became an electronics engineer, although there was a brief reunion with Iggy in 1979, But then he retired from music, got an electrical engineering degree, and became the vice president of technology standards for Sony. Scott Ashton played some gigs with Iggy and in a bunch of bands that went nowhere. And Steve McKay, he was the saxophonist heard on the Funhouse album. Well, he worked with a series of avant-garde performers. No one gave much thought of reuniting the Stooges for decades, even though over the years a number of overtures were made to get Iggy and the Ashtons back together. But things were going so well for Iggy that he just felt that it wouldn't be in his best interests to revisit the past. That is, until his record company came calling. Iggy's deal with Virgin Records was under review. The next record had to generate some buzz or he would be dropped. That's why it was quietly suggested that Iggy round up some guest musicians for this next album. And while you're at it, they said, why not call it the Ashton Boys? 
Iggy took the hint and made the call. Ron and Scott appeared on four songs in a record that was eventually released under the title Skull Ring. This wasn't an actual Stooges reunion. These guys were just hired to play on Iggy's record, but it was close, and it got people thinking. So why not do a reunion? As Iggy says, people love reunification. They like to see that you haven't forgotten your friends, and there's something very basic about that. And so it came to pass that Iggy Pop and the Stooges regrouped and performed at the Coachella Festival in California on April the 27th, 2003. So, Saturday, February 9th, 1974, the last gig at that biker bar, to Sunday, April 27th, 2003. That's 10,670 days, or 29 years, 2 months, and 19 days from breakup to reunion. That was followed by an album. They called it The Weirdness. It came out on March 6th, 2007, and this was a single. It's called My Idea Fun. Iggy Pop, Ron Ashton, and Scott Ashton as the Stooges from 2007. On bass was punk stalwart Mike Watt. It was the first album of new Stooges material since Raw Power in 1973. 34 years. The band toured a lot through the middle of the first decade of the 21st century. And then Ron Ashton died of a heart attack. He made it to 60 years old. The Stooges have since carried on. James Williamson was brought back on guitar. And in 2010, they finally made it into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame after six unsuccessful attempts. So, yeah, they never did sell a lot of records, but boy, did they show a lot of people how it was done. If you're interested in following up on the Stooges and the legacy of Iggy Pop, there's a lot of material to choose from. All of the band's original albums have been released in a variety of deluxe forms, including something called the Complete Funhouse Session. A hundred bucks, and you get to hear everything that went on during the recording of that album, including all the talking between takes. I don't know of anything quite like it. Technical Production is by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.